Kenny, right. Kenny, well, Kenny, 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 Kenny. Hey. How's it going, bro? Brad, it, it's going great. I was. What you up to? Yeah, well, I, I thought I'd preach, maybe. You're good at that, dude. Oh, thank you. Hey, remember that time you told me that if I ever needed anything, I should come find you? I, I did. I do remember that. This wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but here I am, bro. <laughs> <laughs> what can I do for you, brother? Well, I uh, just wanted a couple minutes uh, to emphasize to the congregation and each and every one of the men out there that we are excited for this advance event coming this Saturday. In fact, when your car doesn't run well, Kenny, what do you do with that? I tell Cindy to make an appointment. And you take it where? To the shop? <laughs> to the mechanic. We go That's to the mechanic. That's right. Yeah. You take it to the yeah. shop. So the advance is kind of like that, except you're the car. That's a good point. Yeah. I like it. So we're timing this specifically to give everybody an opportunity to kind of up their game a little bit before the fall and the holiday rush season sets in. So come in, get calibrated, get focused, get ready for the Holiday rush coming around the corner and into 2022. Man-sized breakfast. We're going to feed them and have them out by 11:30. So you're home for you're home for lunch. All right? <laughs> oh, okay. So that's 11:30. Big. It's structured to get you home for lunch, and um, it's also super important that you sign up today or tonight because we have teammates who are going to go out and buy all the supplies for that man-sized breakfast, and uh, with supply chain issues and everything else still not being resolved. They need to know what those numbers are earlier in the week than in the past. So if we're going to do it, we gotta make, we got to make it happen. we got to know that there's going to be the right amount of people and buy the right goods, et cetera, et cetera. So please come. Uh, we see a spot for every single one of you men in that event this coming Saturday. That's awesome. Brad, thank you so much. And whenever you need something, generally you can ask me. All right. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, I love that guy. Hey, uh. Brad and Stacy are doing a great job with men's ministry, and there are other people who uh, God is using. We want to encourage you to engage, uh, sign up, and, and we're going to have some fun coming up this Saturday. I hope you can join us for that. We are going to be covering a lot of things today, but our goal is to end with a time of communion. And during that time of communion, we perceive that, uh, that we're going to address anything that's kind of floating around in our hearts to make sure that we have right relationships this way and also this way. We're going to take some time to walk through the scriptures together, but we're going to find ourselves in Genesis chapter 4. And as we dig into Genesis chapter 4, what we'll start to see is that there is a seed that is planted early on in humankind, and it's still with us today. And we still have to address it in some subtle ways, perhaps. So before we go there, would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We praise you. We ask that you would be exalted and lifted up in the things that we do and in the things that we say. We recognize, oh Lord, that we need you. We need you in some very specific ways. Not the least of which, Lord, uh, is with our relationships. We do things, we say things that Lord, uh, divide us. We live in such a way, in fact, that's our default, that we divide, we hide, we run from. And so, Lord, today I, I would ask that you would have your way in this place, that you would cleanse hearts, 
that you would separate us for your work and that we would work with you, not hide from you, that we would work together, not against, and that you would be glorified and honored. And even today, that as we participate in communion a little bit later, Lord, I I pray that you would draw us to you, that we would surrender all of these things to you and to your glory. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, when we got our first home, when we went to look at homes, we walked into this house. It was a nice house. It was good. But our realtor said, there is one thing that really, really matters about this. I I said, well, well, what do you mean? Can you guess what that might have been? Three things. Location, location, location. He said, hey, here's the reality. You are five minutes from the mall. You are five minutes from any place to eat. It was kind of a small town. But you're five minutes from any place that you want to eat. You're five minutes from the hospital. You're across the street from the schools. Location, location, location. We bought that house partly because of the location. We felt like a good identifier was the convenience that it gave us. It was very convenient to live in that place and we could go to where we needed to go. We could be where we needed to be basically within five minutes. It was wonderful. But as we begin to look into the scriptures, we recognize that location is still an issue, but not for the sake of convenience. We often think in terms of describing things in and of itself. So for example, I might say that this pen is, uh, it's about six, six, seven inches long. It has uh, red ink, blue ink, black ink, green ink. Uh, It's pen. I just described it in relationship to itself. But in the ancient world, they may say, uh, in describing a pen, they may say, I write with it. It's in relationship to a person. It's, It's in relationship to the person. And so when we talk about location, location, location in Scripture, we're not talking about convenience. We're talking about location as it relates to God. God asks a question, where are you? Before we respond to that and we talk about the location of it, let's give a little bit more context. Let's get us there. So in chapter 2, God creates Adam and and. Uh, He warns Adam, you can eat from any fruit, but you cannot eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the first time that humanity is at this crossroads of, will I trust God for what is good and what is evil and follow God, or will I take of it, will I decide on my own what is good and what is evil, and, and will I define what that is? At that place of a crossroads, God creates, uh, uh, God takes Adam, puts him in the garden, and creates Eve. And the two of them have a great relationship, and the scripture says that they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing that divided them. They had an intimate knowledge of one another and an intimate relationship with each other. Now, that's the end of chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 3, there is a serpent, and we find out that the serpent is Satan himself. And Satan goes to Eve and he asks her, or I'm, I'm sorry, he tempts her with some things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
And this temptation is really great. Uh, Eve has this decision. Do I trust God for what is good and evil? Or do I want to be like God? And do I want to define what is good and evil? And she takes of the tree, or she takes of the fruit of the tree, and she eats. And so does Adam. And in that place, their eyes are open, and they knew that they were naked, and they were ashamed. And in that place, they create a loincloth of fig leaves. And it's as if to say, I don't trust you anymore. And we see that play out in the verses to follow, that there is distrust between Adam and Eve. There is a division between them that didn't happen before that. I can't fully communicate it. I don't fully understand it. And I suspect I won't on this side of eternity. But I know that there is incredible damage that was done to humankind at the fall. And at least a part of this seems to be the division between people. It doesn't stop there, though. At the, at the end of this time, they recognize that God is in the garden and they hide themselves from him completely. It's in that place that God asks this question, where are you? And it's not a question of like, God doesn't know, you know, like God's looking around, ah, they were in the garden, I'm sure of it. I think I put them in there. Didn't I put them in here? You know, he, it's not like that. Uh, he's not looking under his shoe, like, oh, I didn't step on them. They're not in these bushes. He's not doing that. This question of where are you is a lament. Where are you? I created you for relationship with me. I created you to walk with me in unison together. And you're divided. You're hiding. Where are you? It's a question that plagues us. But it's the first concept that we need to address in dealing with uh, Genesis chapter 4. And that first concept is that location does matter. It matters. Because either we're going to choose to trust God and be located next to God, close to him in relationship, or we're going to choose to eat of the fruit. And we're going to redefine what is good and what is evil. And in that place, we hide from one another and we hide from God. Our default is to run away, to hide from it. That's the first concept. The second concept is a little bit different. It's called echo. I like to call it a sacred echo or a holy echo. It's this idea that God has a message that he's been broadcasting and, and it reverberates throughout history and hits us corporately and individually. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it this way. It's a, an echo is a repetition of a sound caused by reflection of sound waves. Margaret Fanberg, Feinberg rather, in Sacred Echoes says it this way, that a sacred echo is a reminder that God's message keeps coming back to us. His words are repeated and they echo to our hearts. And I would, I would clarify that by saying that happens to us corporately and that happens individually. And this echo that happened in the garden begins with this question, where are you? Where are you in location to me is God's message, is God's request. And that echo goes throughout humanity, but it also hits us where we're at today. It's a great reminder and it goes from there because this, there's some depth here that we want to we touch on. 
Adam and Eve, uh, Adam is generally translated by this proper name, Adam. But Adam is also translated from time to time in Hebrew as man or men. can also be translated as humanity. Eve is life or living. And so Adam and Eve, humanity and life, come together. And they have fruit. They have a child, right? And what would that be? It's Cain, a murderer. So humanity and life, when they come together, we see this murderer. And we see it lived out a variety of ways. Cain means possession or have gotten, has gotten. And the idea here is, is that, that uh, Cain belongs to Adam and Eve, this murderer. The fruit of humanity and life. We're going to walk through this passage together in Genesis chapter 4. And then we're going to take a look at it and be honest with ourselves about the passage. We're going to hear some echoes throughout the passage. Almost immediately, we start to hear some echoes uh, in chapter uh, 4, verse 1. But then we're going to pull back and we're going to see what, what, does, what does Jesus have to say about this? How does he have us as believers, how, does, how are we to respond? And then we're going to have opportunity to respond. So let's jump in this together and let's take a look. We're in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. We'll spend a lot of time in verse 1 and 2, and then we, we kind of move throughout a little bit quicker. But here's where we go. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. Let's, let's pause there for a moment. The idea to, to know. If you have your pen with you in your Bible, I want to encourage you to underline that new, to new the first time that this phrase comes up is in relationship with God. And God knows good and evil. God knows what's going to happen, a little bit of the context around it. It's associated with God, that God has this ability, and it's connected with intimacy and depth. Beyond that, I don't know that I can communicate better than that on this side of eternity. I don't know that we'll know. But it's used again. It's used with Adam and Eve when they knew that they were naked and ashamed. They knew this intimacy and it caused division. They couldn't define what is good and evil. That is something that is unique to God and they took control in a way that, that caused them to be separated from one another and from God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. A couple of things there. One, the, the phrase gotten there is uh, it's a Hebrew word. It's connected with the name Cain. Um, so there's a little bit of play on words. But then she has this unique phrase, with the help of the Lord. It could be that she's referring to Genesis 3.17. In Genesis 3.17, uh, or I'm sorry, in, in Genesis 3.15 through 17, we see that there is this curse that's laid out. And this curse that's laid out, there is a reminder that there's going to be enmity between the serpent, uh, the seeds of the serpent and the seeds of the woman. For those who walk in rebellion against God versus those who are, uh, who are uh, reflections of God, who, who um, are made in God's image. And so it could be that Eve is saying, this is the fulfillment of God's uh, of God's message to us. This is the prophecy of the Messiah to come. And he is our possession. God has given him to us. Could be that she's saying that. It's implied a little bit there. Verse 3. 
And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Abel is a word that means breath. You might be hearing some echoes there. Remember when God created Adam? That God, when he formed Adam, he breathed into his nose, right? A great reminder of God's presence in our lives. And perhaps Abel's name reflects that breath of God. It could also be that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're being told something is about to happen and that this person whose name is breath is going to be with us for just a breath, just a moment. God is weaving his message throughout humanity to draw our attention to him, to walk more closely with him and in him. And this is a part of when that happens. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. That's a good place to underline, underline that ground. Remember, uh, in Genesis 3.17, that's where we're told that even the ground is cursed because of the work of Adam and Eve, because of their unfaith. And Cain is a worker of that curse, that ground. And we start to see this message unfold in front of us. Where is it going? We're not exactly sure. But we'll continue. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Isn't that great? First person who's identified to bring an offering is Cain. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard, or he looked on to it. He looked at it um, favorably. For Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He did not look at it favorably. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Uh, We see something happening here that there appears to be a flippant offering that Cain is giving God and a very sacrificial offering that Abel is giving God. Without going into all of the details, let's, let's hold that thought right there and let's move into verse 6 because something is happening in the heart of Cain. We start to see he becomes very angry. Why is he angry? Because God isn't accepting his gift. It's not Cain's fault. He's giving an offering. Why wouldn't God accept his gift? And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Let's pause there for just a second. If we we choose to redefine what is good and evil, sin is crouching at the door. It's ready to attack, and it doesn't have our best in mind. In the New Testament, we're reminded by Jesus' words, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, but I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And this is the crossroads that we get to. Will we redefine what is good and evil? Will we not let God do that? Or will we lean into, will we trust God? God, you define what is good and what is evil. And I recognize that sin is there. It's crouching. It wants me to make a decision that is contrary to what is good to me. And I'm at this crossroads. And then God goes on to say, but you must rule over it. What does that mean? You can. We're even given authority in the New Testament to be able to walk in the Spirit in a way that wasn't available in the Old Testament. 
You must rule over it. In other words, just because it's crouching at the door doesn't mean that we have to open the door to it. We don't have to let it in. So, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and uh, his brother Abel and killed him. So, it's really easy for us on this side of things to look at this passage and go, oh man, Cain, you dummy. <laughs> like, what were you thinking? God spoke to you. He told you. He warned you ahead of time. You have, your parents are Adam and Eve. They told you about the serpent. Surely you figured this thing out. How could you have been so dumb? But he was. And there's something going on in the inside that is starting to shift his attitudes and actions, the direction that he goes. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Again, do you think God doesn't know? Of course he knows. This isn't like, uh, again, oh man, he was out here in the field with you and now he's not. Did he go home? Where is he? God knows. But listen to Cain's response. Similar to the response of his parents in the garden. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, you do know. And you're the one who killed your brother. So you were his keeper. You, you took authority over your brother and you killed him. But look at what he's doing. There's like this smoke screen that he's trying to put up, right? Like, am I my brother's keeper? Like, let's talk about me being my brother's keeper, not about where is Abel. Uh, he's hiding. And it's a natural response to sin. It's exactly what happens when we eat of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, when we redefine what is good and what is evil. And in that place, the natural response is division from others and division from God. And there is something that is inside us that draws us into it. We want that. Let's continue to go on, to move on. And the Lord said, what have you done? It's kind of similar to the question that he asked Adam and Eve, where are you? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, uh, there, there is, this is kind of a subtle message, but there's an echo here. God makes this provision in the garden for, uh, uh, for clothes to cover Adam and Eve before they leave the garden. God makes that provision, that sacrifice. Uh, uh, something innocent gives up its life. And then we hear this idea of innocent blood. And this is going to echo all the way up to the cross about this innocent blood that needs to be given, not just to cover sin, but to take sin away. And that God himself comes in the flesh to give that price, to offer that sacrifice. It's part of what we'll be celebrating in just a little bit with communion. Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Well, let's summarize this. Let's take a look at it. Cain and Abel gave an offering to the Lord. The Lord regarded Abel's offering. The Lord had no regard for Cain's offering. The Lord spoke to Cain. Cain killed Abel. That's the flow and that's the response. And we hear echoes. Echoes from the garden and echoes from uh, God's message to Cain. And the echoes are really simple. Where are you? In location to me. 
Where have you gone? What have you done? Why have you divided yourself very, in a very real way against your brother? You murdered him. You're divided. There's no relationship there anymore. But also with God, you've lied. You've murdered and you've lied. You've separated yourself from me. Again, it's easy for us to look at this as a story from the past that it's good to know, it's great information, but it's infected us. It's, it's the, the movement of humanity throughout time. See, even Jesus identifies that this is a problem. This is still a problem in the hearts of people. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and fast forward to Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, let me identify this. Uh, Jesus is talking about a coin, right? And in this coin, he's telling people, okay, whose image is on this coin? They say Caesar, and he goes, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. What, what is God's? Well, those that have his image. We're image bearers. We should be giving our lives to God. That's, that's the emphasis. The point in telling you that is that we have an inherent value because we're image bearers, because God created us in his image. And, and that he has a value on us. So high is that value that he's willing to come in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins, to conquer sin and death, raise from the grave, and give life to anybody who would call on him. That his spiritual seed is placed within us to grow and to be transformed more and more into his image. That's an important piece for us to understand as we look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. I'm going to go through 24 uh, on this passage. This is what it says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so great point. You shouldn't murder. We understand that. There is judgment. That is an action, right? It's a physical action. You shouldn't murder. Jesus goes on. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoa, he's, he's making that same connection. Anger and murder with his brother, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is reminding his followers in the New Testament that there's more to murder than the action of murder, of physically killing. On this side of eternity, the consequences are greater, right? You murder somebody, you spend time in prison. It may even be the death penalty. But, for eternity, there's some similarities. There are some things happening. And, and whatever is happening, it's associated with murder. Jesus goes on to clarify in verse 6 through 8. Listen to this. Uh, very. I'm sorry, not 6 through 8. 22 through 24. Uh, this is what he says. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... Keep in mind that this, this is referring to giving to the Lord. It's an act of worship. It's a part of worship. It's a big part of worship. Okay, so if you're there worshiping God at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Pause there. How important is this issue of unity to Jesus? Jesus, at least in this passage, is saying it's so important that you should stop worship. 
that, that you need to push pause on worship and go deal with those things. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. There's an echo here. The echo is a division that occurred in the garden that is lived out with the fruit of humankind and life and the life of Cain and that those who follow have in their own lives a division, a division that needs to be addressed. And at least in, in this scenario, in this situation, this is, a, this is about murder. But Jesus says, well, it's not just the act. Murder starts somewhere else. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, uh, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This anger <laughs> is coming from the heart. Therefore, murder happens in our hearts. That's where it begins. And Jesus calls us, though, to another standard. As followers of Jesus, we have another standard than the world. It's not about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's not about those things. There is something else. God is calling us to this right relationship with him to not hide any longer, to not cover uh, ourselves up as if somehow we can hide from God. But he calls us into this sort of uh, intimacy as believers together. And Jesus says this in his prayer. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is just about to go to the cross. Just before he goes to the cross, we get this like uh, movie clip of his prayer. And in this prayer, we see the Son of God just pour out his heart. And as pouring out his heart, listen to who he prays for. It's really interesting. John chapter 17, verse 20. He says it this way. I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples that are there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Are there any believers uh, here today? Anybody who've received Jesus as their Savior, it's okay to raise your hand. You're in a safe place. Uh, this is about us. For those who have, been, who have received Jesus as their Savior, Jesus is praying for us. How cool. Oh, what does he say? Go build an awesome church. Get rich. Multiply. Nope, that's not what he says. Listen to his words. He says this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There are a few things to unpack there, but listen to Jesus' words, his call. His, his call is for the body to be unified, to be one, as the Father and Son are one. How one are the Father and Son? They're pretty one. <laughs> they are united. They are together. What do we do when we take evil, when we redefine good and evil? We divide ourselves. We separate, and this seed of anger that is in all of our hearts develops to murder. Jesus calls us to unity. For about 15 years, I've, I've been studying the scriptures on this one particular issue. And, and here's, here's what I've discovered. Nowhere that I can find, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can I answer Jesus' prayer. 
He's answered my prayers. But empowered by the Holy Spirit is the only place that I can find that I could answer Jesus' prayer to be one. And that is a part of me choosing it and willing to walk in it. Jesus' call to us. He says that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world has awesome buildings, great musicians, great speakers, good, good, decent-ish people. Uh, like the world copies everything that we have except oneness. They can't do it. They just can't do it. It's not in them to do it. That's what the Holy Spirit has been given to us, to be one. In just a few moments, we're going to get to participate in communion. And Jesus calls the disciples to this, this practice. For 1,500 years, it was practiced regularly when believers came together, in part to calibrate hearts to be one, in part. One with one another, one with the Lord. The problem is, is this issue of anger. One of the problems is this issue of anger that really is murder. Being angry, being unforgiving, beyond not being kind, to roll our eyes, to comment as Jesus says, you fool, you're stupid, you're in it, you're below me, you're outside of the image that God has given you his image. That's a problem, and it needs to be addressed. We're going to hear from the hymn project in just a moment. In hearing from the hymn project, we'll, we'll be hearing about uh, I Surrender All and the story of, of surrendering all and, and this wonderful classic hymn. As this hymn is playing, I want to encourage you and even challenge you to consider your heart. Are we really surrendering all or are we covering up some stuff? Are we hiding in the bushes away from God? If so, then we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is called repentance. The Bible identifies that with this, this great term and it, it means that my mind is changed. I'm heading in one direction, but I'm convinced that this is the wrong direction and I'm turning toward God and I'm following God. That's repentance. It may be something like very justifiable. I was wounded. I was hurt. I was, somebody was mean to me. But let's not get uh, the idea that just because we've been wronged means that we are right. That, that, that's not what Scripture teaches at all. But there are some things that perhaps we're going to have to address. So during this time, during this video, I want to encourage you to spend some time reflecting before we prepare our hearts for communion. Let's watch this video together.